Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. And welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Excited to be back with you for the second week in a row. May even be the third week in a row, which is, it's 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 new, it's novel these days. I don't get to host as many shows as I would like, but I'm back. And we have a few things that we want to cover today, mostly your questions. But um, later in the show, we're also going to be tackling the question of, if you want to transfer some of the things that you need to be thinking about. So for those of you who perhaps ended up at the wrong place, um, we have some thoughts for you on making a move to get to the right place. Um, But before we get to that, I am happy to welcome my colleague, Shannon Vasconcelos, who's a former financial aid officer at BU and at Tufts to the show. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I'm, uh, we're switching things up today and we're going to start with uh, listener questions. Usually we end with those. Um, yeah. So I'm going to jump in with a question for you. Uh, and this, this one comes to us from Kim who asks, does it matter in which order I list the schools on the FAFSA? Good question. Yeah, and for the most part, the answer is no, it doesn't. It it makes absolutely no difference at all for any federal student aid from the federal government. Um, In a few states, it might matter for state aid purposes, and they may instruct you to list your in-state universities first, probably in your order of preference, because what's going to happen is in some states, they assume you're attending the first eligible school on your list, uh, kind of on the form by default. But if in fact you, it's still, it doesn't really matter because if they make a wrong assumption there and you don't end up attending the first eligible in-state school on your list, you can just contact your state aid agency and tell them where you're actually ending up going and they'll send your grant money to that school if it's an eligible school. It could just delay things a little bit. So if you can actually find out if your state has that kind of odd requirement, um, you can you see it on your state aid website. Um, on the actually on the federal student aid website, studentaid.gov, they actually have a list of all of the different state policies, so you can find it there. So in all likelihood, it really doesn't matter. But if you want to kind of cover your bases, make sure things go as smoothly as they can, which is always nice, I would list your in-state schools first and probably in your order of preference. But again, if you don't do that, in the end, you will still end up being fine. Um, what Where I think this... This, this particular message, or we often get this question, actually, mm-hmm. and I think where it often stems from is the way that the FAFSA used to report info to colleges, and I've still seen, like, rumors floating around online about this, where colleges used to see the other schools that you listed on the FAFSA and what order you listed them in, and it... it ended up coming to light like a few years ago that there Mm -hmm. were some colleges out there that were kind of using this info in in kind of a nefarious way, some might say, Mm -hmm. um, where if you listed a school last, 
They might assume that they were your last choice, and they might end up denying you even if you were, you know, more than qualified for that school because they assumed you weren't likely to come if they accepted you, and that would hurt their yield number. It would move them down in the U.S. News rankings. Basically, they wanted to kind of dump you before you dumped them, like middle school, girlfriend and boyfriend kind of stuff, um, but with much higher stakes. But in any case, that was the situation a few years back. It came to light, uh, I think it was in 2015, that it all kind of came out. The Department of Education removed that ability of schools to see the other schools on the list and to see what spot they were in. So this is not an issue anymore. So any references you see to that online, really old news, and it, it really doesn't matter anymore with that limited exception of the, that state aid issue. Um, but you can really, uh, in all likelihood, list the schools in whatever order you want on the FAFSA. And don't worry, no one's going to see it. All right. Good to know. All right. And I have a question for you that comes in from a high school senior. And she asks, should I be visiting at, I'm sorry, should I be interviewing at the colleges where I visit? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm curious when this student sent this question in. I haven't seen it hanging around on this list, so it doesn't feel old, but I guess it could be. So if it's January of your senior year and you're visiting colleges now um, and they are giving you an opportunity to interview, I think in general, I'd like to step, take a step back and say that in general, if you have the opportunity to interview on campus when you visit, it is usually a good idea to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, not that many schools these days offer the opportunity to interview on campus, but those that do typically consider it an important component in their process. That's why they go to all the trouble to make on-campus interviews available. And in that situation, I would definitely sign up for and do an interview. That said, not that many schools are interviewing in January because most of them are actually reading files. So you'll find that there aren't necessarily people on campus available to do interviews. But if this particular school you're looking at is doing interviews on campus and they're still available in January, in February, and you're going to actually be there, then yes, definitely take advantage of that opportunity. Many schools um, out there might offer interviews, but not on campus and through alums. And a lot of those happen after you apply. So you will be contacted by the alumni interviewer. But mm -hmm. as with anything, and this is something I say all the time, um, I think there was someone out there who was tweeting these um, because I said it so often and I was kind of honored <laughs> that I that I ranked to for someone to tweet about this. But you can never make a blanket statement, right? You can never, there's, there are always exceptions. And in fact, it can differ from school to school. So one of the things that I would do is you put your college list together, and this is for those, whether you're a senior or more likely you're younger earlier on in the process, one thing you should take note of is the school's interview policies. Do they offer one? When are they available? How old do you have to be in order to interview? I certainly wouldn't recommend interviewing any earlier than junior year. I mean, honestly, in a perfect world, you would visit once. And then if the school makes your list and you really want to apply, you would go back and do an on-campus interview if one was available. Because, you know, then you'll have really thought about the choice. You know this is where you want to right. be. And you'll have an opportunity to make a really great impression in that interview. Th that is 
really best case scenario and it can be really expensive unless the school is in your backyard. So in that case, you may need to interview the same time at the same time that you're seeing the school for the first time. Um, But most schools are not going to allow you to interview before your junior year and a lot of places before the second half of your junior year, they're not really going to be interested. Uh, And I would argue that you're not ready to interview before then anyway, because you've often just started thinking about it. Right. So, um, yeah. All right. Next question. Hashtag you. It depends. (laughs) Hashtag it depends. That's exactly right. (laughs) I'm going to tweet it out right now, actually. All right. So Zachary asks, um, yes. I indicated on the Common App that I wasn't going to apply for aid, but I just submitted the financial aid applications. Will I get awarded a financial aid? Do I need to let the school know I have applied? That's an odd conundrum there, Zachary. (laughs) Yes. So uh, I would say, yes, you should let the schools know that you've applied if you, in fact, want financial aid. Um, Now, at some schools, it may not matter. You know, if they get a complete financial aid application, they'll just review it and they'll award you any aid you're eligible for. They might not care what you said on the Common App. At other schools, though, if you say you're not applying for aid on the Common App, they will not consider you for financial aid, even if you submit the application. You know, that's it certainly for this year and possibly for all four years at that school, depending on their policy. So if you need to change your answer on the Common App, you would want, and you do want to be considered for financial aid, if I were you, I would notify the colleges immediately. And depending on the college's deadline and their admissions process, you know, colleges are reviewing applications right now. Uh, If they've made a decision on your application already and that decision took into account that you wouldn't be applying for aid, uh, which it possibly could have at need-aware schools, which we've talked about before, it's possible you could be stuck at this point. Um, So if you want to be considered for aid, but you didn't say that on your Common App, you need to notify the schools right away and hope it's not too late. If if you're applying regular decision, it probably isn't too late at this point. Um, You still have a bit of time, but probably not much. So I would definitely get on that, let the schools know now if you do, in fact, want to be considered for aid. All right. Okay. And one for you from Johanna. And Johanna asks, I was advised to get business cards printed for my junior to hand out to admissions reps at college fairs on college interviews, etc. The card would have a picture of her, her name, her high school class, as well as a few interesting words to describe her that would help convey what she wants the colleges to remember about her. The idea is that it would help admissions reps remember her. What is your take on that? Does it come across as trying too hard? My daughter is planning to apply to very selective small private liberal arts schools in the Northeast. And wow, this is one I have never heard before. It comes across to me as trying too hard, but I know nothing about it. So I will let you answer, Beth. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, as you were reading it, I was sort of shaking my head and having the same reaction. I think to me, this sounds like an idea that someone had who's never actually done admissions um, (laughs) and sort of thinking like, oh, this will catch someone's eye. And it's Uh the same impulse that leads students and parents to line up at an evening program 
and wait in line to shake an admissions officer's hand and say hello and maybe ask a question. Um, and as someone who used to be on the receiving end of that long line of people, I can say that I was perfectly happy to shake people's hands and to answer questions. That's why I was there on the road. But what it didn't do was make you memorable, right? That is because there was no way, because I was on the road doing that event, um, every single night for eight weeks at a time. And, the reality is that it all blurs together and the application is the place to be memorable in a positive way. Right. So um, yeah. while I think, you know, I understand the desire to do something like this, I think the only thing about it that would be memorable would be, oh my goodness, look at this. This is silly. Um, yeah. You know, did someone spend a lot of money on this? And it will likely, I would have you know, it might have made it back to my office, but it probably would have gotten tossed. Um, uh-huh. And so I think it's waste, wasted time, wasted money, wasted paper, wasted energy to yeah. print them. Um, you know, my advice when it comes, especially the more selective you get where the competition is even fiercer, is to put your energy where it matters. <clears throat> Go to campus and visit. Interview as there's an opportunity yeah. to do so. Take the time to fill out as strong an application as you can, which usually means starting your writing well in advance and leaving time to edit and rewrite. And in that way, that is how you are going to be memorable by having a really strong application. Then, of course, doing all the other things you need to do, which is doing well in school, being involved outside of the classroom those things. Um, there is no way that for an admissions officer really to remember every single student who presses a business card into their hand. Um, but what will stand out when they're in the middle of reading season and that's when decisions are made anyway, is going to be right. the strength uh-huh. of that application. So that's really where yeah. you want to put your time and energy. All right, Shannon, we have time for one more question for you. Okay. Yeah. This one comes to us from Tony. Who says, am I who asks, am I required to file a FAFSA even if we won't qualify for financial aid? Good question. No, absolutely not. Nobody's required to to file a FAFSA. Sometimes people get that impression. They think it's an admissions application requirement, and it's not. If you are a hundred percent sure you're not going to qualify for financial aid, you don't need to do a FAFSA. Um, before you make that decision, you do want to be 100% sure that you're not going to qualify. You don't want to leave money on the table. The best way to do that is to fill out on every college's website. They're required to have a tool called a net price calculator. I think we've done episodes about net price calculators in the past. Um, but those are a tool where you can plug in your basic financial info and it will spit out for you what aid, if any, you are estimated to, to be eligible for at that particular college, uh, what your actual bottom line price would be. Um, so before assuming you're not going to qualify for financial aid, because not everyone is, not, you're, we're not always the best judge of our own financial circumstances and whether or not maybe we might qualify for aid, I would do the net price calculator on the websites of every college you're applying to, to confirm if you're not going to qualify. If in fact you're not, all the calculators say, nope, no way, no aid from us. You don't have to fill out the FAFSA. Um, The only reasons you might want to 
There's a few of them. One is if you think you might have a change in financial circumstances um, in the next year or even possibly in the next four years, um, there are some colleges that will not consider a subsequent aid application if you did not apply initially. So sometimes people just want to get an application on file, um, you know, just in case, just in case they have a change in circumstances down the line and they need to ask for a reconsideration. Um, The other reason you'd want to file a FAFSA for sure is if you wanted to borrow any of the government student loans to help pay for college. There are some non-need-based student loans that you can get to help you pay for college. You don't have to be needy to get them. Anyone can get them, but you do have to just go through the process of filling out the FAFSA to get eligibility for those non-need-based loans that everybody can get, but you do have to fill out the FAFSA to get them. Um, So those are a couple of reasons. And then the final reason I would say you might want to do a FAFSA is if any of the colleges you're applying to require it to be considered for merit scholarships. This is a pretty rare requirement, but it does exist out there. There are some colleges that won't even consider you for merit scholarship. They're they're not need-based scholarships. They're merit scholarships, but they make you just go through the process of sort of nominating yourself that you are in the market (laughs) for money by filling out the FAFSA. Um, And again, it's pretty rare. So I would just, if you're thinking of not filling out the FAFSA, I would check the websites of all the schools you're applying to just to double check it it. Make sure it doesn't say anything on the website about having to fill out the FAFSA for merit scholarships. If it doesn't, you are safe and you do not have to fill out the FAFSA. Well, all right. You see, it's interesting to me anyway on this show that you ask what seems like a pretty straightforward question, but there are a lot of responses. And you know why? Hashtag, it depends. And by the way, I did just actually, I just tweeted that out, believe it or not. All right. I love it. Um, We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get right back to your questions, so don't go away. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests. 
which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune into All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're going to get back to your listener questions, but before we do that... Uh, I'm not sure how many people have are still listening who have been with us from the beginning, but if, believe it or not, and I almost can't believe it, we have been doing a weekly podcast on admissions and college finance issues for almost five years. That is, every single week we are here doing this uh, show and talking to you about the things that hopefully matter the most to you as you go through this process. Um, And we are running a special contest on Facebook right now. So check us out on Facebook, College Coach. Uh, If you don't already follow us, like and follow us now. And... um, See what's posted there, and you might want to enter. There's going to be a, what I think is a pretty cool, cool prize, and hopefully you will agree. And we're going to have a special celebratory uh, fifth-year podcast anniversary show coming up here in just a couple of weeks, first week in February, to be exact. All right. <clears throat> so, Shannon, back to these questions. Yeah. I have another one for you, and this one comes to us from Tina. Tina says, my daughter sh- will be applying for college next year, and I'm getting ready to do my taxes for 2019. Should I stop claiming my daughter as a dependent on my tax return so financial aid won't be based on my income information? Oh, Tina, if only it were that simple. <laughs> right. This one, this one is not a hashtag. It depends. This one is right. a hashtag. No, um, <laughs> this is a, a big rumor um, that if you don't claim your child on your tax return, their financial aid, they can apply for financial aid on their own without your info. And it's just not true. It actually did used to be the case, um, but this was decades ago. Uh, and these rumors just never seem to die. Um, so it doesn't help you to not claim her uh, on your tax return. There are very specific qualifications that make a student independent for financial aid purposes, meaning they don't require parental information. Um, and those, the big ones are if the student is in graduate school, they're automatically independent at that point. If they're over the age of 20. Uh, 24, Um, if they are married or have children of their own, if they're a veteran of the armed forces, if they have been in foster care or under legal guardianship, things like that. Those are the things that automatically make you independent for financial aid purposes. Um, If you don't meet one of those automatic qualifications, you can always appeal to the financial aid office for, they call it a dependency override. If kind of, you you should be 
dependent by the mm-hmm. uh, kind of by the books, but um, it, you have a pretty extreme circumstance which does not allow you to get parental information, uh, and that tends to be things like, unfortunately, like abuse or neglect in the household. Those are reasons a school might uh, approve a dependency override, uh, not just how you file your tax returns. That would be way too easy. Uh, everyone would do it if it were that easy. That it kind of falls into the category. Uh, hashtag, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, yes. So I would say claim claim your daughter on your tax return, get the child tax credit, because that's kind of the sad things when people hear this rumor. So they don't claim their child hoping to get more financial aid. They get no more financial aid and they actually lose money on their taxes because they missed out on getting a child tax credit. Um, so claim your daughter, get the child tax credit, just accept the fact that the financial aid office is going to consider your info and there's just not much way to get around that. Um, uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, (laughs) financial aid, you know, is for needy families, not for families who file their tax return in a certain way. So sorry that it's not going to help you. All right. And I have a question for you, Beth. Um, from Dean. And Dean says, my daughter was admitted to her early decision choice, but she has already submitted all of her regular decision applications. She has deposited at the early decision school, but is there a reason that she has to withdraw all of her other applications? What is the harm in leaving those in play so she can get a few more acceptances? Ooh. Mm -hmm. Tell us, Beth, what is the harm? <laughs> well, um, we'll start with the the ED commitment. And it yeah. sounds like your daughter and your family has followed through on the ED commitment for the most part. And what you are agreeing to when you apply to a school under early decision is you are saying, this is my first choice school. And I agree that if you admit me, I will withdraw all of my other applications and deposit at your school and attend your school. And by doing this, you are showing a preference for that school and encouraging that school to show a preference for you. And in general, the only way out of the ED commitment would be if you needed financial aid and the financial aid package that the school gave you was not good enough. In this situation, there's no mention of financial aid and the the daughter has already deposited. She's committed and she's going to attend the ED school. So then the bigger question is, what is the harm? Well, the first place that there is harm is that you are actually violating the ED agreement that you signed that your daughter signed and that your daughter's school counselor signed. And that is to withdraw all other applications. And that can be a problem if she leaves her applications in at other schools and then the the school to which she was admitted early decision finds out about it because now she's in violation of the agreement and they are within their rights to withdraw her acceptance and now she is out of luck. She's no longer going to that early decision school because they're not allowing it. They've, they've withdrawn her acceptance. So now she better hope that she gets into some of those other schools. Um, however, if some of the other schools got wind somehow of the fact that she uh, was committed elsewhere for early decision, they might withdraw her application for her because 
she had already right. committed right to a different school. Um, they the ED school is not sharing the fact that she is committed to that school, so they wouldn't find out from the ED school. But it might come out in a conversation with a school counselor um, who might not realize that your daughter hadn't withdrawn her application since she has, as noted, agreed to do that already. Um, and you would be surprised what people will do um, if some of her fellow students in her class know that she is keeping some applications in. They might take it upon themselves to notify those colleges on their own. They might even notify the ED school on their own. I have seen it happen. I have been on the receiving end of those um, usually anonymous letters. I don't think that's ideal. We never looked very kindly on anonymous letter writers. However, you're getting information that you, you know, you're not necessarily going to ignore. Um, and then I think the final thing is that on the, the challenge here is that we all feel like, at least I guess I should just speak for myself and my colleagues, we talk about this stuff a lot. The admissions process has gotten very crazy. It's, it's different than when I applied which granted was a while ago already, but but really pretty different from when I applied. It has gotten much yeah. more stressful on both sides, not only the student side, but also the college side. Things have gotten very unpredictable. And when she leaves her applications in at other colleges, what she's doing is potentially taking spots that she has zero intention of using away from other students who really would love to go to that school. She might even be taking merit money, financial aid, if she qualifies. Um, And this is money and uh, admission spots that could go to other students. And, you know, maybe this is a crazy notion, but I I really like to live by the idea that my actions do affect others and not to do that because, uh, you know, (laughs) I'm hoping that other people, I'm in my early decision school, I can ideally afford to attend, I was able to deposit, what an amazing thing. I'm hoping other students get similar opportunities. And therefore, I'm not going to arbitrarily take them. And, you know, I guess the last thing too is, yeah, maybe it feels great to get a few more acceptances that you can, I mean, I don't really sure what the point of that is, I guess, cocktail party chatter or ability to brag about it to (laughs) others, you know, but um, what if those actually all come in as, as denials, then is there um, a sense that, oh my goodness, and now your early decision acceptance, which was so wonderful and bright and shiny is now somehow tarnished by the fact that you heard no from everybody else. Right. Um, So Exactly. Yeah. I don't see like much of an upside. You maybe, like you just said, you don't get in. That doesn't feel good. Even if you get in, like, what if you get a great offer from another school that you can't take because you've already committed elsewhere? Like you, now you've just stressed yourself out. You're having regrets. I don't see much upside to this course of action at all. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And, um, Yeah. And again, you did agree to something and the school counselor was part of that. And the school counselor is expecting you Uh to uphold your end of the bargain as well. So not a fan of this practice, Dean. I would I would highly encourage not doing it. And, you know, I do want to say I understand that for most people, this is the first time they're going through the process. It may be the only time that they go through the process if they only have one child. And Uh I don't think that people intentionally set out to trying to do the wrong thing or the negative thing or the underhanded thing. Um, So really my encouragement here is read the fine print, know what you're agreeing to. And then 
if it comes to pass that you get what you wanted, follow the agreement like you said you would. If you if you do that, then you should be okay. Uh, okay, I'm getting off my soapbox now. <laughs> um, all right, the next question for you, Shannon, comes from Nerva. Um, who says, my son is a decent student, but not top of the class. Are there any scholarships out there for good to average students, good slash average students? Yeah, there are plenty of scholarships out there. Now, I can't just like give you a list of them. You know, being an average student doesn't tend to be listed in the scholarship requirements. <laughs> like we don't accept A students, you must be B or less. Um, they don't say that, but there are certainly scholarships where academics aren't a primary consideration. You know, they can be based on artistic ability. Um, I'm thinking about one when this episode airs, I think our last um scholarship spotlight. Once a week, we run a scholarship spotlight on our blog, just kind of calling out one one scholarship that might apply to you that you might want to look at. Uh, and it, it's the Google Doodle scholarship that's totally based on your creativity and your artistic ability. They don't look at your grades. Um, others are might be based on your ethnic background or community service or your field of study or medical conditions that you have. You know, it's kind of all over the map. Um, yes, a, a lot do look at academics, but not all. And, you know, even if they do look at academics, it's not necessarily the primary driver of who's going to win the scholarship. Um, so I would definitely recommend using a scholarship search site like uh, scholarships.com is a good one, where you can find scholarships that match your profile and your kind of specific talents or, again, kind of anything in your background might make you a match for a certain scholarship. They're definitely not all academic. Um, so that's kind of one side of, of the scholarship game, um, the private scholarships, scholarships out there from various organizations, and some might have an academic component and some others don't. Um, then the other side of, of the scholarship game is the merit scholarships from the colleges themselves. Um, and you probably already know this if you're a regular listener to the show, because I feel like I I mention it in most episodes that I'm on at least, but the best source of scholarship funding is by far is the colleges themselves. So applying to colleges where you are going to stand out, where your grades, whatever they might be, are above average for that school is the best way to maximize scholarship funding. So, you know, you could be top of the class, you could be straight A student, but if you're only applying to like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, where everyone's a straight-A student and at the top of their class, you don't stand out in that applicant pool, and you're not going to see scholarship offers. But you could be more like a solid B student, and if you apply to colleges where the average GPA is, uh, is more like a C, you know, you as a B student look quite good and you are likely to see some nice scholarship offers, much more so than that straight A student who only applied to the most selective schools. So apply to some safety schools for you, you know, schools where you are a bit overqualified. And that's really the best way to win scholarships. Um, so Nerva, you know, your son doesn't have to be top of his class. You know, the higher his grades, the more schools are going to fall into that safety school category for him. But as long as he's a halfway decent student, there are plenty of schools out there that would be willing to offer him money. It's just a matter of 
keeping an open mind about colleges, considering colleges that aren't the biggest brand name, you know, the ones that will really want him, uh, maybe where they have to, schools that have to work a little bit harder to recruit students rather than the schools that everyone is throwing themselves at. That's really the best way um, for him to win scholarships or for anyone out there to win scholarships. That's the biggest thing to think about. Apply to some schools where you are above average, that's likely to maximize your scholarship offers. Yeah, and just to underscore what you're saying, in addition, the most selective yep. schools aren't offering merit scholarships, right? So any at all. You, right. So even in general, even if you were top of your class, top of everything, one of the best <laughs> applicants that Harvard sees every year, if you are, um, if you don't qualify for qualify for financial aid, but we're hoping to get money mm-hmm. to help pay for college, you're not going to get it there. So. Um, Shannon, thank you so much for joining today and um, providing some great insights as usual. Um, It was great to have you on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. My pleasure. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we are going to be talking about transferring. So for anyone who feels like maybe they didn't end up at the exact right place for them, we have some advice for you on going through the transfer process. So uh, don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Want to experience football from the perspective of a former player who also has coaching experience? Tune in to Sports Info UM with Daryl Oliver. He'll talk about the draft, play-by-play, and even what's happening in the offseason. Daryl has the connections and the knowledge to bring you the inside stories of the game's past, present, and future. He'll cover the camps on and off the field and everything else, football and beyond. Sports Info UM is heard Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, We are moving on from your questions to transfers and the transfer process. And my colleague, Jen Simons, who happens to be a former admissions officer at four phenomenal institutions, Tufts, Barnard, Northeastern, and Connecticut College. So she definitely knows her stuff. Probably more than more so than maybe anybody else on our team, just given how much work you've done in the admissions world. Welcome, Jen. Hi, thanks. That's a that's a very uh, large introduction. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if I can live up to it, but thank you. Oh, I'm pretty sure you can, and you're very welcome. Uh, okay, so we're talking today about transfers. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about finding the right fit, um, the process of applying to college, putting together your applications, how to think about the different supplemental questions. But despite our best efforts, despite everyone's best efforts, sometimes students end up at schools where they feel like they don't belong or where they, while they might like it fine, there is another school that really still holds a place in their heart and that is where they would like to be. So we wanted to talk about transferring today and I think the the first question I have for you, we've talked about kind of why is, you know, how to handle it when a student comes home for Christmas break or even Thanksgiving break saying they want to transfer. And what we're assuming with this segment is that you know for sure you want to transfer. And so my first question for you, and a lot of my questions are really around the nuts and bolts of the process, but we also have some things I want to talk about around um you know, things to write about and stuff like that. But the very first question I have for you is, what is asked for in a typical transfer application? Sure. Um, So most transfer applications, the same as most undergraduate, um, excuse me, not undergraduate, freshman applications, use the Common App. um, And it's a similar application. It's certainly a similar format um, as the one that you used to apply as a first-year student. So the differences are going to be, instead of a guidance counselor recommendation, there is going to be a dean or advisor's recommendation. It's basically a college official's recommendation. And unlike your guidance counselor in high school, the recommendation is not necessarily a letter or even a recommendation, quite honestly, because at most colleges, you're not going to necessarily know your advisor super well or, you know, know the dean at all. The purpose of this uh, letter uh, or the form that they fill out is for them to vouch that you're in good academic and social standing. So it's more of a pro forma, but it's very important. And that's one of the key differences um, in terms of the requirements of the application. Additionally, there's a teacher recommendation, but it's for a professor, ideally, um, someone who's taught you at the college level. So even if you're thinking of transferring freshman year, um, or I should say, even if you're a freshman thinking of transferring for sophomore year, um, at the point of the application, you might only have four or five college-level courses under your belt, and you might be in the process of taking four or five more it's ideal to get a recommendation from your college experience. And in many cases, it'll be required, even if you're just in your first year at college. Um, And so those are the recommendations. In terms of your part of the application, what I call the administrative part of the application is the same. I mean, it's the details about your family and what you've been up to and and things like that. Um, And you'll have to get your transcripts 
um, from both college and from high school, your final transcript from high school will be submitted. Um, but the main difference in terms of what you have to produce is that um, the uh, the essay is not necessarily a creative essay in the same way the freshman application, um, you know, might have uh, provided you with the opportunity to be creative. At least that's what we tell you to do. And that's what I certainly like to read when I was on the other end. This is more of an explanation of why you wish to transfer um, and, you know, sort of update the admissions officers as to what you've been doing since they might have heard from you last, you know, or even if they didn't Mm -hmm. literally hear from you because you didn't apply to that school, but since you were a high school senior. Got it. And I think that is... Um, I agree when I read uh, transfer applications at Penn, um, at the end of every regular admission cycle, we many of us helped out by reading some transfer applications. So while I really wasn't an integral part of the transfer process at Penn, I did read files. Um, and I definitely wanted to better understand why, especially if a student was already at a really good four-year institution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're trying to get a bead on What's the goal in leaving where they are and coming here? What do you do if your student to, you know, generally speaking, if you're planning to transfer, it's rare that the student who wants to transfer is extremely happy where they're at, right? If they were, they probably wouldn't be leaving. So, but sometimes it's fairly extreme. The student is deeply unhappy with their current experience. How do you talk about that? in an appropriate way in that essay, because I do know that an essay around what a terrible place the student was currently at, at that institution did not win points with me. Oh yeah, no, of course not. And that's, it's a very fine line because you want to be honest and realistic. You're transferring um, oftentimes for, uh, for the reason that you're very unhappy. Something is not satisfactory. And sometimes you're transferring because you legitimately had a not-so-good experience that I don't want to say is the fault of the university, but is particular to that, you know, that school. I mean, it could be something like a roommate issue, which you could have anywhere, but it could also be just a, a bad fit in some ways. The key is to really talk about the college as if, this is the way I think about it, as if you imagine that the reader, that your admissions reader went to that college. I think that's a good sort of way to think about it. You don't yeah. want to offend them. You want to, you know, you want to be honest, but you also want to be gentle. I know that, you know, uh, College X is, is a great place. I have friends here that are very happy. It's just not the right place for me, and here's why. And then what's similar to the, if you've, as a freshman applicant, had to do those why us essays. Um, remember where you're talking very specifically about the college to which you're applying. I would encourage you to do that in the transfer essay as well, even if it's not asked as a supplemental question, and especially if it's not asked as a supplemental question. So the key is to not be like wholly negative about your experience, um, to treat it like, you know, you're, you're, 
treating something that someone cares about and to be kind about it, but to be honest about it. And then also to be very specific about what college B, the one you want to transfer to. Sorry, I, I went from X to B. I don't know. I should have, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so, but you know what I mean? So what, you know, what the, the college that you want to transfer to, what they offer that's very distinctive, not only from your college that you're currently at, but also from other colleges in the same way you hopefully did that as a freshman. So in other words, if you would like to transfer, if you're in Southern California and you like being in college in Southern California, but the one you chose is much too small for you, know that when you say you want to go to a bigger school, you want to go to a university, that's not just one college in Southern California. So be very specific about what you want while also never, never bashing the, you know, the experience that you've had. Um, It's something I hope this hasn't happened, but if you've had a a bad experience, personal to you, then you need to really, you know, explain it as something that happened to you. And again, put it in perspective. Um, People understand that, you know, people have difficult experiences, people make, you know, the wrong decision or the decision that wasn't right for them. So as long as you're being kind about, you know, the school that you're at, I I don't think you have to worry. You're transferring. There's obviously a mismatch there. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I really love the way that you position that. And actually, I'm stealing that and I will be using that moving forward, which is imagine that the person on the other end who's going to be reading this attended this school is an alum and loves it so much that now they're working there. And so it's okay to be honest, but if you are, if you're starting to get to the point where, wow, what I wrote probably would offend someone who actually enjoyed their time at that institution, then you've gone too far and you need to pull back. And, um, I, I think oftentimes people mistake the essay, the purpose of the essay and feel like it can be a place to air grievances um, I've seen this in a main common app essay, and you know it's generally could be a grievance about their high school experience or something else um, in their lives. But you really have an opportunity here to be um, mature and thoughtful about making a different choice. and mm-hmm. um, you know that needs to be reflected in your writing. So um, really great advice. Thank you. Uh, what about really, uh, what about deadlines? Um, when, how, when is the typical transfer process and when are most materials due? Um, just that kind of thing. Sure. The, the typical, well, I, there really is no typical, you know, transfer process in that unlike freshman admission, there isn't a set class. Usually some schools will, like, for example, the UCs actually reserve a number. The University of California system reserves a number of spots for transfer students within, um, you know, community colleges in California. But generally, colleges don't have a set number of spots that they reserve for for transfer students. Um, at least that's been my experience. Some of them expect that they'll have transfer students because they have a lot of students that study abroad. Um, they certainly understand that many students take leave of absences, you know, for various reasons, or they decide to work for a semester and come back. Um, so they try to predict it as best they can. But I often tell the story of, you know, the post 9-11 world, all those kids that, you know, right after 9-11 and even the year after 
after 9-11 um, wanted to, thought they were going to study abroad, suddenly things changed and colleges weren't accepting, you know, transfer um, students. And now the world is volatile, you know, again, and mm-hmm. or it has been since. And so you can't often predict as a college or university how many spots you'll need to fill until the very last minute. And that is usually in March, um, you know, in terms of when the deadlines are. Additionally, you we've been in situations, I've been in situations, I should say, where the freshman class is a little overextended. And so whereas a college might have planned on taking transfer students, they might not, or the opposite could happen. So it's less predictable. I think that's my point, um, which was not your question, but I think it's important for our listeners to know it's less predictable than freshman admission in terms of the volume and the acceptance rates and things like that. Um, however, I think applications generally are due in February or March. Decisions are made in March, April, and May. Some schools like under, you know, like I keep on saying undergraduate, I'm sorry, like freshman admissions have a rolling situation. Obviously, you look for deadlines, um, you know, on on the on the uh, school's website and whatnot, but um, they really don't generally get started before March, in my experience, unless they have also a dedicated transfer team. Because usually, what happens, at least every place I've worked, the same people that are reading the freshman applications are then having to read the transfer applications, and you can't really do both at once effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you you can, but you often have so many freshmen, <laughs> you know, applications yep. to read that you have to finish that process before you start um, with the transfer process. Um, So, you know, at Tufts, for example, we would be reading um, freshman admission, you know, in March and then your four freshman admission in March. And then the director of transfer, you know, uh, Denny Paredes, who I think is still the director of transfers, would say, okay, guys, it's time to re-transfer. I know. um, It was really, (laughs) not that we didn't like like it. uh... And actually, it's, it's different. It's fun. But it's like, okay, here we go again. Exactly. All right, Jen, thank you so much. Really helpful information. And there's very quickly one last thing that we wanted people to know is that a lot of schools have specific info sessions for transfer students. So if you are thinking of transferring, you might want to check that out because there will, of course, be really excellent information available directly from the schools of interest um, when they do those sessions. So, Jen, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Beth. Take care. Okay. Next week, Sally is going to be here. She is going to be talking about the impact of school counselor shortage, shortages and the, the ratios, which are um, ideally, and this is the ideal, and I think it's not ideal, a 250 to 1 student to school counselor ratio, and at uh, the average is about double that. So um, that's causing some issues, and Sally's going to be talking about that. We're also going to be addressing seniors who might need scholarships. We have some suggestions. Also, um, thoughts for seniors who are heading into the second half of the year. Very quickly, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like this podcast, please review us. We would love to be featured. And if you review us, that helps us. So the more reviews we get, um, the more likely we are to be featured. So if you've been listening to us in any of the past five years, um, check us out. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. 
Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.